Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations, and about the theory, process, and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. This week, I'm finally bringing you my interview with Jeff Stormer, host of Party of One podcast, co-host of All My Fantasy Children, indie game designer, relentless hustler slash promoter, and all-round goodnick. Jeff is one of the reasons I'm in the podcast game, so interviewing him was a dream come true. I hope you like it. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're talking to Jeff Stormer. Hi there, Jeff, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely no problem. Would you like to take a minute to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role-playing game scene? No, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Absolutely. Uh, My name is Jeff Stormer. I am a podcaster, a tabletop game designer, and the unofficial official LARP designer of the Olive Garden Restaurant. Uh, I am the host of Party of One, which is an actual play podcast focused on two-player role-playing experiences. I am also the co-host of All My Fantasy Children, which is a character creation, storytelling, and world-building podcast in which my best friend and I take listener-submitted prompts and spin them into original fantasy characters. I'm also a game designer on my own right. I've just recently designed Anyone Can Wear the Mask, which is a three-player superhero RPG about a superhero, a supervillain, and the city that they share. And I do a bunch of other things. I am I am lovingly and joyfully overbooked at all times. <laughs> That is a mood. And, you know, you are relentlessly positive and bullish in promoting people in the indie space. So we appreciate you. <laughs> it's a thing that I enjoy doing. It's it's what has kept me around for I am in spitting distance of six years. And, and the thing that has kept me that has kept me engaged in that time has been getting to promote cool things and getting to yell about how cool stuff is. So All My Fantasy Children is one that uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit about. Let's do it. Aaron Katana Saez is kind of one of my favorite podcasters, really. <laughs> Curry is called Just Start Again. Mm-hmm. It did. Season two, season two just dropped. And I'm very excited about that. So do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about All My Fantasy Children and what it's like? Yeah, of course. Aaron and I both describe it as like a writer's room style podcast. It is a podcast where, uh, like I said, we take a listener submitted prompt um, and Aaron and I we actually just passed doing this for five years, which is exhausting to think about, if I'm honest. Amazing. <laughs> it is amazing, and it is. It, I'm genuinely extremely emotional about it, and also just the phrase five years. <sighs> and you take so few breaks. <laughs> We've gotten much better about taking breaks, and I've gotten much better about taking breaks and all of the things that I do. And hey, if you're listening to this, I, I know that there's a number of uh, tabletop designers that are listening to this. You probably haven't taken a break in a while and you should probably do that. Doesn't matter how you how long you define that as, you should probably be taking a break right now. You should be taking a break. Podcasters take a break. Podcasters take a break. Designers. If you are living in the world of 2021, you probably have earned a little bit of a break and can just (laughs) take some time to breathe. Take some time to breathe, drink some water. Unclench your jaw. Yeah, yeah. unclench your jaw, <laughs> relax your shoulders. This is the rest of this podcast now, frankly, as I'm talking about how great <laughs> yeah, breaks are. It's just a self-care podcast, yeah. But yeah, how the show works is we take a listener-submitted prompt, and using some of our favorite like indie tabletop world-building games, character creation systems, we spin that, that prompt into a, a character or a world detail or a legend or a piece of this fantasy world that we have been building now for quite literally the last five years. That's some dedication to world building. 
It is wild. Aaron has been writing out the notes into like world guides and periodically he will just send me a word doc and I'll look through it and be like, this is 10 pages. And he's like, yeah, I just, I, I, all, this is all of the stuff that we've built in this section of the world. And I'm like, wow, yeah, that feels like five years of podcasting is what that feels like. For me, it is really like a joyful experience. I love world building and, and, like, even more than world building, we use it as an excuse to tell a story. We'll kind of, you know, tell that that character's story or the story of that world detail, and it kind of becomes a little, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes a little self-contained story that has a beginning, middle, and an end. So if you just want to listen to a fun, uplifting story from two best friends, there's really not an episode that you can go wrong with. And then they all kind of connect together into this larger, gigantic world that we have been spinning together. And it is, uh, it is a beautiful thing. And also, it's an excuse for me to talk to my best friend for an hour. And like, I don't feel like we have enough excuses to do that in the world. So, uh, it is a thing that I am eternally grateful for that among many other uh-huh. reasons. But even if it were just that, like, it would be enough. It's really lovely to hear. <laughs> it is a really good podcast. It's, it's very popular, actually. And, you know, I think people have a lot of respect for it. So kudos to you. The other project that people may also know you from or probably do know you from is party of one yes want to give us a little bit of a history of party of Uh, one maybe and maybe why you started that particular format absolutely um party of one like i said is an actual play podcast focused on two-player role-playing games every week i sit down with a friend just one-on-one and we play a two-player game sometimes we laugh sometimes we cry sometimes we do both it's really kind of special i think it is kind of a a unique and special thing in the world of actual play it's something that i'm really uh, happy with we've been running now for almost six years our six-year anniversary is in the end of october assuming that i take some time off between now and then which is the plan but i don't know exactly when that time off is coming we will hit episode 300 around the same time a double anniversary, yeah. I've realized I really like kind of trying to, if I can, lining up the big anniversaries because I, I, I realize it's just <laughs> sort of a fun and special thing to do. <laughs> I like it. You're listening to this, and if you've not listened to the show, you think 300 episodes, that is a nightmare. That is a number that actively stresses me out. And listen, I get it. I get it. But they're almost all, I would say, 75 to 90% of them are self-contained episodes, and the others are like sequels to other episodes. So for the most part, if you pick an episode, it is a self-contained story where you can hear two people have a lovely conversation and play a game together. And it's kind of a special and magical thing that I think even as there are other shows that do similar things, I'm being so bold as to say... There's not really another show that that kind of does what Party of One does in the way that we do it. It's a special thing, and it's kind of always been a special thing. I agree, 100%. It's it's pretty fantastic. Is there a reason you decided to opt for doing one-on-one play, or is it just kind of convenience? So there's there's a lot of different reasons. There are some of them that are... Some of them that have a story behind them and some of them that are a little more uh, practical or tangible or some would some would say cynical. But I would say I would say uh, I would say savvy. (laughs) The full story is that we started the show in 2015, but really it kind of dates back to around 2011 when I moved in with my partner, Jen Frank, who is the producer of the show. We had moved in together. We moved from New Jersey to Philadelphia. I left like a weekly gaming group. 
Once we left New Jersey, they closed the gate and they said, they said, no, no, you stay in Philadelphia. So yeah, I, I could no longer justify like traveling and paying tolls to go play Dungeons and Dragons for a few hours with my friends. Like, yeah. and so I had left this weekly gaming group. I was sad that I had like lost this kind of treasured friend tradition. And Jen, in her infinite wisdom, was just like, hey, do you want to like look into games that the two of us can play together? Because we both love, we both love role playing games. Like, what can the two of us play together? Yeah. So this was 2011. So like a lot of my research came up with an answer of kind of maybe, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> but I had sort of amassed a few different games. There were, you know, there were a handful of games that were around in that time that were designed for two people. And there were a handful of articles and things that like pointed to like, here's how you can adapt games for, for playing with two people. And I'd kind of been reading them and Jen and I had played some games together. Yeah. As this was happening, I was falling in love with actual play podcasts. I was listening to a great deal of one shot. Uh, I was listening to a great deal of a bunch of other podcasts. And it came to a point where a dear friend of mine came to me and said, hey, we're expanding our podcast into a network and we're looking for pitches and I want you to pitch a show. Right. I said, all right, I think I can do this. And I was talking to Jen and we were having like several long conversations. I was like, I want to be doing this. It's a creative thing that I want to engage with. And again, Jen in her infinite wisdom goes like, why don't you make uh, an actual play? And then and I said, OK, what would it be about? And we both kind of went, well, we've played a lot of two player games. That's kind of a thing that's not really out there at the moment. And that was kind of when I talk about the logistical or the cynical things. There was a moment where we kind of looked around at a bunch of the sort of popular actual play podcasts or the ones that we were listening to and went, you know, like there's a real niche here that like if you wanted to, you could make a thing that no one else is really doing. Yeah. I pitched Party of One to my podcaster friend. He was like, I like it where I'm in. I want to help make this happen. And then immediately the podcast network did not materialize. Their plans fell apart. Oh, no. <laughs> no hard feelings. We're still we're still extremely close friends to this day. It just didn't work out like the people who had said they were going to like facilitate it just did not end up facilitating it. So he was like, unfortunately, like we don't have a space for this show. And I was like, well, I've already put together the materials. I've, I've got like game ideas like I'm ready to go. I want to make this happen. And Jen and I both went, why don't we just make it in house and produce it ourselves? And so it became our thing. That was six years ago and we haven't exactly stopped. We I, I keep saying we'll stop when it stops being rewarding and it hasn't stopped being rewarding. So here's where we, so here <laughs> we are. That's lucky for us. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great kind of origin story to that. And yeah. It's evolved into kind of a indie tabletop role-playing game institution now. Everybody I know who listens to actual players listens to Party of One, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is incredibly flattering to hear. It is very funny. Uh, I will say with nothing but love for the show that one of the most impressive things that we've done is still have our lights on. And you know what? The lights are still on. So I feel good about it. To your comment about convenience... <laughs> <laughs> I will acknowledge wholesale that this was a conversation Jen and I had when we started the show where we went, you know, doing a show with just one guest is going to be way easier for booking. And we went, yeah, uh, yeah. that's great. I don't have to try and manage four people's schedules. All I have to do is say, when are you free? And then make myself free that day. That's how I feel. It's great doing one-on-one -on -one interviews. It's great. Just from a scheduling standpoint, it's real nice to be able to say, hey, when is good for you? I can make that happen. Yeah. Normally, I sort of ask actual play podcasters, you know, what do you think makes a good actual play? But I think that's a bit dull to ask you in particular. I'd like to know what you think makes a good one-on-one -on -one game. It's not a mode of play that a lot of people do, but I think it's a mode of play that, as you said, is very accessible and kind of like sweet and intimate as well. So 
Yeah, and I think that's really what I would say is the thing that really makes it pop. And the word has contexts and connotations. I think the connotations are a little bit can be removed, but like the core of it to me is a great two-player game is going to be a game that kind of like leans into and kind of leverages that sort of inherent intimacy. Yeah. Like I said, like there are connotations where like people hear the word intimate and they think of things like romance. I don't think those things are necessarily like necessary, but I think acknowledging the sort of unique energy that comes from two people having a prolonged conversation. Like, yeah, the thing I always kind of think about and the thing I always say here is if you think about the kinds of conversations that you have with one person for an hour or more, there aren't that many of them. No. They're all kind of emotional. It's dates. It's moment. It's interviews and, and professional things with a boss. Yeah. Like even this interview, like there's an intimacy here because it's just you and I speaking for an extended period. Like, yeah, yeah. And I think like you can use that intimacy in a number of different ways. Like there's a ton of different things you can do with that intimacy. I've seen it used really well in like romance games. I've seen it used really well in like horror games. I've seen it used really well in like like kind of lighthearted comedy scenarios where it's really just you're making one person laugh as hard as they can. And that's sort of a magical experience. Yeah. The games that use the format, they use the kind of two player structure the best are the ones that say, here's a particular like intense moment that can be explored between two people. Here's a here's an intense relationship dynamic. Yeah. Whether that is like a heavy thing or a light thing, like if it's if it's a silly thing, a serious thing, a scary thing. A, here's a moment between two people that is like intense and here are kind of the tools to play that out and to explore it and to play it out safely and to really kind of maximize the magic of that moment. Absolutely. I mean, I think the examples that spring to mind immediately from your show list are I love you, dude, but no fucking way. <laughs> hey man, I love you, but no fucking way. That's a great game. And that was a really, really cool session you did. It was a lot of fun. That one we played with a friend of mine. I played with my friend Aaron. That one is kind of embodies what I love about Party of One because like we got to show off a cool indie role playing game. We also got to I got to sit down with a good friend of mine for an hour and a half. And one of the things that's been really gratifying about making Party of One is getting to really do weird and interesting things with the format. Yeah. So that game is a listen along role playing game like it is in the rules that you play the front bottoms album, The Talent of the Hawk. You start the game, you hit play on it, and then you listen through, and until you reach the end of the game, like, you play that that album on a loop. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We mutually, like, put on the album, we, we had, like, a Spotify listen party, and I said at the top of the episode, like, if you are listening at home, open up Spotify, like, play them at the same time, and hit play in 3, 2, 1, now. And getting to do, like, cool, weird, you know, kind of format-breaking stuff like that is kind of one of the things that has kept the show alive and one of the things that has kept the show gratifying. And also just, like, it's part of what I think makes the show interesting and special is that, like, we've done a lot of cool, weird things and we've been lucky enough to have guests and and friends of the show that are willing to be like, yeah, I'll do this. Like, I will commit to this weird twist on, on your show formula and it... <laughs> It's the kind of thing that wouldn't be capable if we didn't have like a really strong formula. But now that we have a really strong formula in place, I can go, 
Okay, cool. Now, what does this look like if we take one of the player slots and we make it the moon? What does that look like? That was actually going to be one of my other examples because uh, I love Adira Slattery's games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bad Moon is a particularly good example of just like, this is weird, but also that is very cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's weird and emotional and it's absolutely perfect. That is a really good episode, actually. If anybody <laughs> wants to listen to you talk to the moon for three quarters of an hour, uh, that is definitely one to go and listen into. I think the other example, like talking Talking about intense moments. Maybe it was an earlier episode. Maybe it was more recent than I'm thinking. Our radios are dying. Our radios are dying is by Aura Bell. We played it with Strix, and yeah, that episode is really a formative episode of the show. And I think, like, if I'm pointing to important moments on the show, playing that game was one of them. Mm-hmm. The story behind it was uh, that I had found a list of two-player games, and I was like, "Well, this is an incredibly good resource." <laughs> and on that list was Aura's game. Our radios are dying. Our radios are dying is a story game, is a like a freeform LARP about two lesbian lovers dying in space. Yeah. It is heartbreaking and it is tough and it is difficult to get through, but in the best possible way because there's so much kind of heavy emotion there. Yeah. Confession, I never actually finished listening to it because it was too much. That's fair. I don't fault you for it. But it's a great episode. I don't fault you for it. There's a behind the scenes tidbit of the show, which is Jen and I split editing duties on the show in addition to like producing and all the other kind of like behind the scenes work we split the editing down the middle the way that we like decide who's going to be editing each episode and the kind of particular rhythms that go into the release schedule is there are episodes that jen just goes i don't want to listen to that i don't want to edit it right jen loves like light-hearted fun exciting episodes and i love sadness and being sad right <laughs> so there are there are no shortage of games that i will play the conversation Jen and I have when I walk out of the room after a recording is I will look at her in the eyes and go, yeah, you're not editing that episode. And then, and she'll be like, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then just go back to like prepping dinner stuff. Or I'll walk out and be like, that was a you episode. And like, I'll be all excited and jazzed. Like, and part of the magic is that that has meant that like every other episode is either more lighthearted or more downbeat, depending on like where you are. And so like, if there is an episode that you hear the description and you're like, I don't think that episode is for me then the next episode should be more your emotional speed right 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 it's just great you like like you said you like you do light hard stuff and mm-hmm. you do sad stuff and that is pretty much the mood of the show and mm-hmm. it's, it's so much fun like i think a pilot episode is fate yes yes we played a we played a lucha movie in fate super super gonzo <laughs> lucha it was great movie, and it was, it was great so much fun and uh, you know that is kind of a if you want an example of the light hard mm-hmm. stuff that's the way to go and then um uh, there's, a, there's a series you do, I think, in DCC, Dungeon Crawl Classics, and that's kind of sort of sad, but also kind of gonzo as The well. first time Aaron and I ever sat down to do a recording was in the DCC episode, and we sat down, and yeah. the story is that after we finished that recording, Aaron went away and was like, he sent me a message later that day that was like, that was so much fun. Do you maybe want to think about like doing a regularly recurring podcast? And oh, I was like, cool. That's I was great. like, come up with some pitches and send them to me. And then eventually we kind of stumbled into and now it's five years later. <laughs> to backtrack a little bit, I had read it. And when I reached out to Strix, we were talking about doing an episode together. Strix had mentioned wanting to do an emotionally intense game. And I had my little list of game recommendations. And I had said, I have this game. I said, it is heavy. It is emotional. It is a tough game to get through. And we both said, okay, this is exactly what I want. 
this is the thing that we both want to explore. Like, this is the energy that we both want to bring to the game. Yeah. And it was the first time that, like, on the show, we had kind of gone that that heavy with it. We had a few episodes that kind of, like, skirted that line. But, like, that was the first time we had an episode that was just, like, heavy from top to bottom. Like, it is the first episode that really is, like, an emotionally intense... I say grueling, but I say that as a positive. Like, it is a grueling episode. Yeah. And afterwards, I walked away and I was like, wow, like, I don't know that I could point to that many actual plays that have anything close to that kind of mood and energy. And I was like, I want to do more of that. Like, I, I was like, and that was kind of a, a light bulb moment of for me. The interesting story about the growth of the show and the way that I would describe it is like before that moment, we were trying to be like a comedy actual play and kind of the I, I say this. And I've said this to James D'Amato, so it's okay for me to say this. <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> we flat out stole one shot's format and just did it with two people. Like, we just full on were like, we just wanted to do one shot. We stole the format from one shot. <laughs> uh, James has ribbed me about this in the years since then as we've become good friends. And I can do nothing but accept it because you listen to the first handful of episodes. I am doing a James D'Amato impression because I hadn't found my own voice as a podcaster yet. And this was the, uh, that episode was one of the moments where I went, Oh, that's what this show could be. Yeah. That's a space that this show could occupy that I truly don't know that anybody else is kind of, or that very few other shows are inhabiting at this moment. Like it kind of started this real kind of shift of the show to kind of what it is now where we will do an episode that is really emotionally intense and heavy and sad, and we will go to that space just as often as we will go to kind of the goofy or the fun and exciting episodes, because it kind of is a thing, and it's one of the things that has made the show really special, and it was a real kind of finding my voice moment, because I was like, oh, I loved this. This was a really emotionally powerful experience that, like, I am grateful for. I want to do more of that, and, like, once I kind of had that light bulb moment, I was like, oh, then I should be doing this because it's the thing that I want to do, and that was that was yeah. one of the most, yeah. like, profound and freeing moments in the history of the show was going, oh, this is what I want to be doing. This is what I want the show to be. Got it. Now it all makes sense. I, I do listen to a lot of actual plays, and I do agree that a lot of them are kind of on the light-hearted uh -huh. and goofy scale. But the, like, since you've been doing this, I think you've kind of blazed the trail of, um, you know, people doing sad podcasts as well. Now I listen to like these flimsy rituals, and Saskate did a bunch of sad ones as well. And it's really nice to see these heavy emotional content games being played out as well as. Oh, I hit it with my sword, you know? The two things that have been really gratifying about being an institution. <laughs> well, I'd say there have been three really, really cool and gratifying things. Because we started in October of 2015. And it was already kind of in swing, full swing at this point. But, like, that was a point in kind of tabletop game history, I guess, as for the history of our very young art form. Where that's kind of the Kickstarter moment, right? Like that, like around that time, the mid teen, the early to mid teens is kind of when Kickstarter went from being, oh, this is kind of an interesting and peculiar thing to, oh, this is a thing that we can use to make games that would never have found a traditional publisher before. Like, mm, so we yeah. kind of watched the, we watched the kind of Kickstarter games boom happen and we were kind of there for that. And then. As part of that, related to that, and also related to the other kind of thing that we watched happen, we watched Itch.io become a thing. We watched this platform form, like, come to fruition that, like, was giving creators that, like, couldn't really, like, because Drive-Thru RPG kind of had a specific audience that was looking for specific things. We watched 
an audience and a platform and a storefront. We watched people find real success with this platform and, and ways of creating, of creating games and, and building audiences and telling stories that were outside of this kind of established beats of what, like, a game that would do well on drive through RPG would look like. Yeah. And both of those together meant that we got to watch the rise of, and I say this phrase with nothing but love, weird little games. Yeah, absolutely. We watched games get weirder wave after wave, and <laughs> a big part of that was watching more and more games come out that were designed for two people that were really these rich, beautiful experiences. Yeah. And the other thing is, and this is kind of the most recent and kind of tied to Ichia was like, Adira Slattery said this to me and it was really stuck with me of like, we kind of got to watch like lyric games become a thing. Like we were around and in, in that scene and Party of One is one of the few shows that can like actually say we sat down and have an actual play of a lyric game. Like it's there. Yeah. And like Bad Moon is 100% a lyric game. Adira will tell you that to your face and like. We are one of the few actual plays that was able to be like, we are going to produce this and make it like a real tangible thing. And we got to kind of watch all of those things happen. And like most recently, like we're kind of currently seeing that like people are now moving away from Kickstarter and exploring other things. And it's been really like extremely cool to be a fly on the wall, kind of watching the tabletop game hobby and industry shift and adapt to all of these sort of seismic things and being in a place that is kind of directly connected to the industry to kind of watch all of these things happen. I mean, I feel like you do yourself a disservice there calling yourself a fly on the wall because <laughs> I think your role is bigger than that. I mean, to some extent, you're facilitating this. You know, you're actually putting people's games out there, encouraging them to make more and letting people hear their own games being played, which I, I feel is extremely gratifying and extremely validating. So, you know, do yourself proud. <laughs> I, you know what that's fair no that's fair you've led me to an almost perfect segue there which is talking about itch funding which i think you have been employing for one of your own creations so i didn't have a term for it when i started the project but uh it since then has taken form uh which is kind of like i said kind of the last thing that we have gotten to kind of watch take shape and like see it and be there and be kind of be present for kind of watching it form Anyone can wear the mask, like what I said, is a superhero role-playing game for three players. It is a hack of D-Penny ways beyond the rift. It is a game about a superhero, a supervillain, and the city that they share. It is inspired by, obviously, Spider-Man, as well as my deep abiding love for Superman. The phrase that I use is it is my, my ten years late collegiate thesis on why superhero stories are compelling and interesting. <laughs> Because true story, I do have a, I have a degree in comic books. Like it is what my English degree is focused oh, wow. in. So this is quite literally the me putting the use, the thing that I went to college for. Amazing. Yeah. I finally got to use the thing that I went to college for, which is incredibly satisfying. <laughs> the thing is, uh, when we launched it for reasons I don't want to go into, I was still fulfilling another Kickstarter. The Kickstarter fulfillment was kind of out of my hands. Like I was in a place where I was like, I can't launch another Kickstarter without this first Kickstarter being done, but I can't finalize this Kickstarter. Yeah. I can't do the last three steps that are going to push this thing over the finish line. 
but I don't want to wait until an unspecified point in the future to put it into the world. Yeah, which is understandable. So I had said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this thing on itch for sale. I'm just going to drop it. I'm going to say this is the release date and here it is for sale. I'm putting it out there and it's done. I've got some freelance money that I've been putting into game stuff and I've got some money to set aside for a cover and for some some interior layout. And then I'm going to do that. I'm going to put it on itch. If I happen to sell enough to pay the artist that did the cover, if I have enough to pay him for the interior art, I will do that. And and Itch is a wonderful platform because it is built for video game development, so it has that kind of early access mentality. It's really built on, you know, iterations and and yeah, uh, updates. Yeah. Like it like it is a very update friendly platform. So I was like, I'm just going to do this. If I make enough money to art, I will publish an update and say, hey, now there's art. Like, that's as far as I'm going to think about it. And then I was like, I could offer stretch goals. There's more stuff I want to do. I want to hire Aaron to do an audiobook because I wanted to have Aaron do an audiobook for a role-playing game for years. I was like, what if I just also said like, hey, and if I if I happen to make enough money to also pay for the audiobook, I will make the audiobook happen. And I was like, okay, cool. So I started to think about stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I like this. And then I kind of thought back to the, the other Kickstarter that I had run. And I was like, hey. And this had partially came from, I saw a tweet, I saw a wonderful tweet that was someone talking about a party of one episode and they had tagged me in it and they had said, it was really cool listening to Jeff play this game with the designer. I feel like as a designer, I could do this. And that kind of got my brain buzzing. And I was like, you know what? I, when I ran my Mission Accomplished Kickstarter, offered people a reward that said, I will run you a game of Mission Accomplished. Like, I, you pick the players, I'll, I'll show up. And I was like, I could just do that. That doesn't need to be tied to a Kickstarter. That doesn't need to be a special thing. Like, I've got some time. I can just make that happen. Yeah. I'm going to put it on the itch page. The nice thing about itch is that it gives you that option that you can have different reward tiers that you charge different amounts of money. It's what people use for the community copy system. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, if you give me X amount of money, I will run you a game. Done. Easy. And then I was, I looked at it. I was like, okay, so what I've done here is I've built a Kickstarter. I'm going to promote this like a Kickstarter and see what happens. So I, I ran a low stakes half Kickstarter campaign, half not, where I said the game's available for sale. If we make this much money, I'm going to do this, this, and this. If you want to give me more money, here's the three things that you can do to get to, to give me more cash. It was a much huger success than I thought it was going to be. And so uh, we're doing with it all the things that I wanted to do, which is incredible. As that was happening, other designers were kind of talking about doing the same things. That idea of like what would become known as like itch funding kind of took shape around this thing that, that I was doing. Like I said, it was cool to see it happen in the same way of like, oh, okay, yeah, other people are starting to, to get the same idea. I'm really excited because we're all kind of developing what this is going to look like and what it's going to mean to to do this. Yeah. Like there were a lot of really great conversations that I had with designers of like, hey, do you think we could do this? Like, what if I did this? Like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try it on a project and see what happens. And like, you watch it and be like, oh, that's an interesting approach that I hadn't considered. Yeah. My view on itch funding, this is, this is, you're getting discourse, Jeff, now. <laughs> My view on itch funding is, I think, when it has been at its best and the thing that I'm most proud of is I think we built a really phenomenal toolkit. I think that we built a really phenomenal set of tools and options and practices and Things that might not work for you, but things that really, really might. And like the idea that like no one has to do all of them as a kind of community industry hobbyist effort that kind of like has done all of these weird things. I feel like a really cool toolkit has emerged where it's like your project might not have X, Y or Z, but it might have A and B. And 
you might find a lot of value in that. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's so many benefits to itch funding and some of them are kind of, some of the ones I can think of are sort of contrarian, which is we want to move away from Kickstarter for X, Y, Z reasons. Yeah, sure. But also there are people in the world who just cannot have access to Kickstarter based on its terms and conditions and they have access to itch, even if that's curtailed somewhat by Mm -hmm. their access to PayPal, for instance, then it's fantastic for the people in Southeast Asia, for instance, to have access to that resource. So that's really good. It's also a lot like it feels lower stakes. And I've seen people that have run it really intensively, like, and that's kind of what I mean by like the the toolkit angle is like, I've seen people do a thing where they go, hey, here's my game. It's for sale now. And I'm going to offer this as an additional option. Yeah. I know Sandy Pug Games did it for one of their games. Yes. Where they were like, this game's for sale. If you give me X amount of money, I will write you a piece of lore. They were like, there was no funding goal, but they just, they added that that as a thing to one of their games and were like, here you go. I'm doing this. And they did, that was all they did it with. And I was like, that's, that's cool as hell. <laughs> that's fun. And then like, I've also seen people who like run their itch funding ga- campaign as if it were a Kickstarter. Like I've seen people go, we are running from this day to this day and this is launch day. Please be sure to, to, to buy the game on launch so that we can meet our financial goals. Here's what we want to achieve. And like, seen people with like a fully mapped out campaign and i've also seen people who are like i'm putting the number up i'm saying you know if we ever reach this number we'll do x y and z but like whatever that's just how much money it would take to do this thing that i want to do with the game and it's that kind of toolkit mentality that kind of like everyone is kind of hacking this thing and building their own options and building their own kind of solutions it's kind of the coolest thing in the world it is watching every person look at all of the options that are available to them and going okay let's make this happen like let's build this out and let's figure it out like i could do x y and z x is the thing that's going to be valuable to me so i'm going to do x and i'm going to one of the things that i bounce off of hard with kickstarter for all of its many like positives is it's kind of all or nothing yeah you commit to kickstarter you are committing to the 30-day window you are committing to the emails you are committing to the stretch goals you are committing to the funding levels like they are all kind of kit and caboodle they are all kind of in there and they are all very tightly tied together yeah i love i love a system that says like you know here are parts there are parts of this that are going to work really well for you you do those and throw out the rest that modularity is really nice and like that you and others have developed this amazing sort of toolkit and have run these campaigns experimentally is really nice and it gives you sort of something to fall back on whereas like kickstarter i feel is a very stagnant platform now and it's it's cool but it's it's kind of the formula is there isn't it you you plug in your game and you get money out at the end of it and like i think a lot of small designers particularly don't want to do that zine quest was kind of one of those things that is meant to be lower stakes but like make it even lower (laughs) it gives me the energy and like it's one of those things where even zine quest the idea is that it's kind of low stakes and it's low low goals and like and i say this with love and i say this having supported a number of these games like look at the games that are coming out of zine like it's that kind of like production race mentality of like i gotta make my kickstarter stand out yeah as a platform kind of like it pushes towards that sense of i gotta put a little bit more in yes it does so like you see these things coming out at zine quest that are utterly like they're inspiring and they're incredible and they're cool as hell and they're beautiful but like they can be really intimidating like and you have to kind of say and say like i'm stepping into the ring and i'm, I'm gonna fight till the finish 
Whereas you could just be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a financial goal in mind, but I like running games for people. So give me some money and I'll run a game for you. Or you can say, yeah, this is going to be on sale for 30 days and we'll kind of see what happens. It's that, like you said, modular. Modular is a good way to put it because it just has that energy of like you take the pieces that you need and you ignore the rest. I think it's really good and I think it's going to be really accessible for people going forward. And maybe it doesn't have the clout that Kickstarter has, but it has the clout in indie circles. And I think that's really important for the scene. And it's really healthy to see like new stuff developing and new ways of making money and new ways of building the hype train, as they say. So it's great. And thank you, I guess, for (laughs) putting those tools together. It's really fun. We sort of moved off the topic of anyone can wear the mask there. We kind of went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> it was a good rabbit hole. I liked it a lot. Do you want to tell us a little bit about anyone can wear the mask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any, like I said, it is a superhero game. It is my, my love letter to superhero comics. Um, it is a three player game and it is, it's just very cool. You know, it's a game that I, that I put a lot of my, my love of comics and superheroes and superhero storytelling and sort of the, the folklore of superhero iconography into it. It is a game where the hero never fails to stop the threat at the end of the issue, but the real the real question is whether or not they can save everyone along the way and what happens when they can't. Right, yeah. It is a game that is about what happens when the villain emerges that is too powerful for the hero to stop and the hero's journey to kind of come back stronger and save the day. And it is my Superman game. It is a game where the threat and the drama and the story is not, oh my goodness, is the hero going to be able to survive the supervillain fight? It is, oh my goodness, is the hero going to be able to, to get everybody away from this catastrophic superhero battle before someone gets hurt? Because to me, like as someone that has been reading comic books, I mean, I, I learned to read on comic books. Like that's what is magical about the superhero. Yeah. Like there's a famous Stan Lee story where somebody asked him, who would win in a fight, you know, the thing or Spider-Man? And he asked the question back, whose name is on the cover? <laughs> it's that idea that like we all kind of implicitly know that the hero is going to win. No one wants to pick up the Batman comic where Batman confronts some mobsters and then just falls over. Like no one wants the, the Batman dies horribly. <laughs> it's like that's not a thing that we want when we pick up a Batman comic. We want Batman to win the day and we care about what that means to Batman. And so this is a game about what that means to the superhero. I think that's really cool. It feels a lot like, yeah, like you said, Spider-Man and Superman as well. It's kind of about the, the emotions that you feel on the way, I suppose, to kind of borrow, borrow that slightly hackneyed cliche by now. And it's, um, it, it sounds really cool. And actually reading through it, it is a really cool game um, based on Beyond the Rift. We spoke to Deep anyway about this last year. You know, their games are really cool. And this, leans into that format really nicely so kudos to you for making a game that sounds really cool i love it it's it really is it is a love letter is the only way that i can describe it (laughs) superman is an important character to me and to my moral compass and to my my kind of upbringing and to my the way that i i process the world and so yeah got to kind of finally make a thing that said i've been trying for my entire adult life to put into words what and why the character of Superman is important to me. Yeah. And I feel like with anyone can wear the mask, like I finally have that thing. And so like, I am forever happy and grateful and pleased to have this thing in the world. And I guess my other question would be, why 
when your brand is all about two-player games, did you make a three-player game? Uh, well, first off, joke is on you because there are two-player rules in the book. <laughs> all right, I did Checkmate. see those as well. <laughs> because I think that the, when I played Beyond the Rift, like, that dynamic was so important, that three-person dynamic, and, like, yeah. the kind of role that would become the city is so important in Beyond the Rift and playing it through, I was like, I want to make this a superhero thing, and, like, yeah. it was such an important thing to me, and, like, also, this is also just my curse and the curse that I have in my life, because, uh, to your point, the game that I did take to Kickstarter Mission Accomplished, that was my first Kickstarter, it was my first, like, published game, it was, like, the biggest thing that I had done in my career, this would have been 2018, so this was three years into making Party of One, this was Jeff Stormer from Party of One going to Kickstarter with a game that literally cannot be played with less than four people. Right. <laughs> and there are levels to why it doesn't work with less than four people, because... The structure of the game's uh, storytelling beats are that in order for the game's end game to work, there has to be a player that gets last place, there has to be a player that gets second place, and there has to be a player that gets first place, and there has to be a GM role. So, like, it cannot work with less than literally four people. And so I went to Kickstarter, and yeah. I was like, I'm here! And people were like, cool, can you play with two people? And I was like... No, and in fact, I can say really confidently that the answer is no. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I like these um, kind of small group games. I love I think them. They're really cool. Um, Iron Swan leans into this really, really well. That's one of my favorite games at the moment. And obviously anyone that can wear the mask as well and be on the rift. And people are making more and more of these games, which mm -hmm. are two player or even one player. Or I think there's a spindle wheel variant, which is zero player. So, you know, that's it's very interesting to see. And we kind of got to watch it, like we've watched it happen. When we started the show, when we started Party of One, it was really truly the view of what the show would be was, all right, well, we're going to figure out how to play insert game here with what it's going to look like if you play it with two people. And now we're to a point where if I were to play every two player game on Itch.io as of today, like if no one ever released a role playing game again, I could fill years and years of party of one with <laughs> brand new games and never run out of games never do a repeat game like as is there are more games for two people available than will ever be able to be featured on the show oh that's amazing no matter how long we run this thing and i'd like to run it for a very long time like we will never feature all of the games that are available and we got to kind of watch that happen like we watch we watched that happen and it was the coolest thing in the world. That is amazing. We salute you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and so far as we should, you know, I, I really, really hope that your podcast does continue for a long Fingers time. Fingers crossed. It's a lot of fun. It's one of my favorites. And, you know, I probably listen to a couple of episodes a week because I have a huge back catalogue of it. But, uh, you know, it's it, it's great. It's great fun to listen to it from the start and to listen to newer episodes as well. So, you know, again, kudos to you producing an amazing podcast and for writing cool games thank you and on that note i think we're pretty much ready to wrap up jeff would you like to tell us where we can find you on the internet again no i'm good <laughs> all right cool well i'll cut the interview there then yeah <laughs> yeah you can find me on twitter at party of one pod you can find my work at jeffstormer.com from there you can find the podcasts that i produce the games that i design my the the blog that i occasionally update you can find my games uh, in specific at jeffstormer.itch.io you can find party of one at party of one podcast.com and you can find all my fantasy children at oneshotpodcast.com because it is on the one shot network and like i said you can find me on twitter at party of one pod amazing and uh i guess all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for coming on yes indeed pod and take good care thanks so much everybody have a great rest of your day drink some water drink some water <laughs> stretch 
Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Jeff for the interview. As always, you can find all the links in the episode description. In two weeks, we're talking to Jeffrey Hayes about Haunted Hill Academy, a Powered by Fate coming-of-age supernatural horror game which explores the tension between internal and external identities. This sounds incredible, so check out the interview in two weeks. This week, I'd like to thank our Patreon backer, Sam Lay, designer of great games like Anamnesis and an all-round great person to know. Thank you so much, Sam. And you, yes you, can get a shout-out like that too if you go to patreon.com slash yesindeedpod and sign up today. You'll get access to our Discord server where we hang out and chat and even join monthly editing streams and the Yes Indeed Pod book club. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me, so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene which will make it a healthy and inclusive place for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly, you can always help out by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcast or by donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at yesindeedpod. That's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. The intro music is by my amazingly talented friend Gemma Hooper, and the outro music and interstitials are from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thank you, Gemma and Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.